Hello and welcome. I'm Alex Promos, Head of Institutional Content and Investment Magazine, and this is Market Narratives. This show is a series of unorthodox conversations with thought leaders influencing the world of fiduciary investors. For more related insights and analysis, please remember to check out our website, investmentmagazine.com.au, and subscribe for a free email. And with that, please enjoy this week's episode. Hello and welcome everyone. Today I'm joined by Thad McCrindle, who is the Chief Investment Officer at Sandhurst Trustees. Thad, welcome. Thanks, Alex. Thanks for having me. So let's kick off with an easy question. Uh, Finance, what got you interested in it? Probably a couple of things. Um, my grandparents probably were the ones that got me into it. They bought me a couple of stocks when I and uh, and kind of engaged me on the on them as a child, sort of age tenish. And I thought that this was a great idea. You uh, you bought it, put put a bit of money, bought uh, a couple of shares, and you got income uh, year after year or half after half. And then the thing that sort of uh, put me on the path to uh, I guess a finance education at university and the like was as a teenager my uh, grandfather took me to the floor of the stock exchange uh, in 1987 just a few months before the crash and um, the hive of activity and I thought this looks pretty awesome I'd love to be paid to be involved in in all this uh, energy in essence and and I guess that that sparked my interest in you know my education and then career since then. And when you moved into obviously being a professional investor, what what was the transition like from you know being a hobbyist you could say and being interested in it to actually putting this in practice? Yeah, that's a that's a really good question. There were probably a few stages. My first roles out of university while I was still investing my own capital, sorry, I still am, but were quite analytical. Uh, and so I learned a lot of modeling, a lot of uh, the way derivatives worked and uh, and fundamental analysis at the time as well. And so I moved on pre-GFC into a structured finance role uh, because it was a very fast-growing industry and really, again, developed processes for making investments that were quite bottom-up, modeling-based and approach. That's probably the best answer. There's a little bit of learning as well as you go. Some asset classes I've only touched uh, since running the investment program here. And those are, you get the benefit in this kind of role of working with managers. And so uh, learning from their expertise, uh, I think would be the last piece of the puzzle. It's interesting, that question was somewhat of a setup in terms of what the process is to then take yourself to be a CIO and, and sort of how does that role evolve from looking at the individual asset classes to then thinking more holistically as a portfolio manager or a CIO ultimately? Yeah, I think you do have to reflect a lot on whole risks and think about multiple timeframes. Certainly, you know, as you build your career and and in my path, I was initially a, you know, worked in fixed income portfolio management. You start, you know, with a very constrained universe, perhaps. Uh, so the the breadth of where you can go and where you can be active, assuming you can be active, of course, is quite limited. And uh, as you say, the the path to CIO really involves engaging with those people that do have whole risk responsibility and spending a lot of time understanding nuances. For me, uh, again, leaning on my skill set, it was quite quantitative and, and understanding some of the math 
and the practicalities like that. But I know that a lot don't need the math necessarily, but it is really about understanding how small decisions have an impact on whole portfolio. And again, I think the multiple timeframes is a really interesting one that so many people miss. What's a good decision over the next three months can be a terrible decision over the next five years. Uh, And what's the investment timeframe of the program? Well, it's a lot longer than five years anyway. So the the multiple timeframes and and I guess trying to manage that in your mind and uh, and making sure that you understand how processes support that risk management is uh, is really a quite a critical piece of the puzzle and and, and I guess the path you need to take to uh, to get toward a CIO kind of role. You mentioned about quantitative uh, roles in, in finance and 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 how quantitative approaches play into the portfolio construction, but when you start to think about multiple timeframes. You know, how much can you really take into these you know, decision-making processes, the quantitative? You know, how much of it is really just a, an art as opposed to a science? Well, I think quantitative is really, I guess, what I lean on. I totally acknowledge your point. The maths to sort of optimise across all timeframes at the same time would be terribly, terribly complicated. And we don't have sort of public models for that. And in my business, we don't have proprietary models that can do all of that at the same time either. Uh, And so definitely there's an element of art. The art, however, probably does come from experience. And and I'm a big believer that in this industry, most things can be learned, but some things best learned from doing. Other things probably can't be learned. I I will acknowledge that. But the art really comes from, yeah, how you understand risk. And and I will be one to say as well, you know, volatility is an expression of variability of returns. It's not holistically risk. Risk is is the fact that anything can occur. I'm curious then, as as you explain risk, one of the challenges of of learning through through time is your exposure to volatility through different crises and different uh, happenstance that, that, that come through. What do you feel that you know about risk today that you probably didn't know when you first started? I learned a lot uh, in the GFC. So I was running uh, structured finance uh, portfolios, a private credit and a public credit, a couple of funds, and they, they were very focused on structured finance or RMBS investments, MBS investments. So frankly, it was liquidity was what I learned. The way liquidity works, I guess, uh, as part of the feedback mechanism for, for traditional fear and greed in terms of, I think a lot of, a lot of retail investors think fear and greed is all about responsiveness to the change in circumstances and future earnings, future price, etc. But I think liquidity is, is such a key component of uh, institutional action, particularly balance sheets in terms of bank balance sheets and hedge funds and other highly leveraged strategies. And, and I think learning the interplay of the way liquidity impacts markets and price and, and I guess can create some of that feedback system is, is one of my biggest learnings. And it was quite a while ago, the GFC. Does that mean that then the pillars that make up your portfolio have changed? Look, I think I think so. Or, or certainly the way we monitor has changed a lot. The way we think about forward risk indicators, which don't always work, but uh, that they've definitely changed a lot. We 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 spend a lot more time on liquidity. On you you know, there's a whole bunch of metrics you can use, but. We also actually are searching for soft information on liquidity, conversations with key liquidity providers, which tend to be banks and other people that play close to central banks, because we think that that's, again, a really critical component of risk. And in fact, certainly if you look backwards over the last couple of years, opportunity too. I guess that's a perfect place to transition and talk about then the role of fixed income. Uh, Obviously, 10, 20 years ago, fixed income was a great 
place to park a lot of your money as a defensive uh, piece of the portfolio, plus from a return perspective, doesn't seem to uh, offer either of those characteristics anymore. How do you think about then fixed income in the portfolio today? Yeah, so I think um, like so, the, what we think about with fixed income is, uh, and if I split it between sovereign risk and and credit risk, sovereign risk for us is an important asset simply because it's uh, one of those assets that has reliably had a negative correlation to equities over short timeframes in distressed markets. So it's a it's a good quality hedge for you know a a crash or a or a steep bear market. Uh, in equities. And like pretty much all other institutional investors, you know, we've got a lot of equity risk. It's our dominant risk in, in our portfolio. So duration is one of those things that we are always keen to own. We're uh, wary and we have been, uh, we have had lower weights, um, both from a strategic perspective and also, I guess, from an active asset allocation perspective as well for for a few years now. But I also like to think about that kind of risk and, and you don't actually own that to to deliver a return. It, it's not supposed to do that part of the equation. It's, to, it's supposed to be the ballast. And so when the returns from those assets get really low, it might change our appetite at the margin, but we're not keen to give up uh, those assets. Yeah, it's interesting because you, you know, a lot of people now think of fixed income as not playing the historical role from a return perspective. Uh, and without maybe thinking about the defensiveness, have now moved up the risk curve into credit, and that that's become their way of re- reconsidering what fixed income should look like. I'm curious to get your thoughts on on that transition. Yeah, so I think that um, if you think in buckets, uh, that's a very natural thing to do. So credit is an asset that frequently outperforms sovereign, and uh, and so if you if you think in buckets, then that's obviously the the thing to do. I, I don't like to think like that. You know, I think credit has its place. If you look at it, really, it delivers a return profile, and, and I'm thinking of fixed rate credit here, but it delivers a return profile depending on what type of credit you're talking about, where it is in the capital structure, but maybe the equivalent of uh, 85% government bonds and 15% equities. We think about comparing credit return to the return of that combo portfolio, and, and, and we've noticed that quite frequently, uh, credit it has a lower uh, expected return. So, in essence, for that high certainty of credit premium or the you know the credit coupon you're getting, you're actually overpaying to 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 get that return premium. Now, having said that, credit's a brilliant asset for someone who's got a pretty short time frame. So, someone who's into retirement and drawing down on their assets, or if you're talking about assets that are being used for something that's not retirement related or retirement savings related, so purchasing some kind of other thing. Uh, credit's a great asset because it pays you quickly. The return premium is certain or uh, highly likely and it pays fast. So I think it's a great asset for some portfolios, but for accumulators, I don't see it as a as a great asset, uh, to be honest. Do you see value in some of the maybe defensive equities, these value plays that are sort of paying 5 6% dividend yields as being maybe an alternate way rather than going down the credit spectrum, maybe pick up some of these defensive slash value plays on the equity side? I actually think about those strategies a little bit similarly to what I was saying before. I think for a retirement portfolio uh, or maybe it's not quite as short a time frame for your savings if you're saving to buy a product, a particular product or a house or something, uh, those kinds of strategies are very attractive. 
They're also very attractive if you don't have leverage constraints. So if you can lever those up, sometimes they're quite efficient in terms of risk reward. But if you can't lever up, then you, you tend to be end up giving up returns. So we think a lot of our customers are through their phase of accumulation, mid-accumulation, perhaps is the right term. And uh, and so for us, we um, we kind of have a preference for strategies that probably have a higher total expected return, even if they have t- higher volatility. And I think in, th- in this environment, Alex, just going back to my point on credit, floating rate credit is one of those assets that probably does have a place. And, and we would think of it as uh, some kind of shorter term or medium term kind of asset to own. But again, it's uh, it's got a return premium and a risk profile that's got a in part equity or it's very correlated to part equity. And so the payoff has to be there. And in many instances, credit premiums on say something like investment grade credit right at the moment is, is not really um, that attractive compared to other uh, assets. Let's pull it out a little bit in terms of your, your world being effectively wealth management. Is that fair to say? Uh, yeah. So, we are a retail superannuation fund, and uh, and so our customers come from uh, the retail bank that, that owns our business, and also uh, from through financial advice. Um, so then, my next yes, question is then: how does it how does it then look? What what you're doing internally versus maybe the other super funds, institutional profit for member style funds? You know, what's different in your approach to wealth management or portfolio management? We should say. Yeah, that's that's a fair call. We like to try and accommodate the way a financial advisor thinks uh, in the way we offer our set of options uh, within the within the, the superannuation platform, and so um, we we will typically break up a little bit more, or maybe not. In some instances, we we run options on the menu, which are kind of quite similar, I guess, to the profit for member sector. We do try and accommodate a financial planner who might be a little bit more particular and and they might have a little bit more uh, niche desires when they're constructing portfolios for their customers. And it definitely, the onus is on us to to try and think flexibly and be open to innovation and, and, and I guess, um, different product offerings. And I will admit that we um, we're not necessarily a sort of a highly creative, innovative leader by any measure. But at the same time, we definitely think like that and um, want to make sure we're delivering product that again suits perhaps some le- less conventional thinking. So if you think about the concept of a um, a governance budget, w- what that really is all about is both the number of hours of resource, the amount of skills, and also the beliefs and the types of issues that are considered by your key decision makers and the the amount of delegation that that they're going to use and and do. And so when I look at trustee board and the the, the governance budget that it provides, that gives you a, a range of possible outcomes and you might insource or outsource different things depending on that group's beliefs. But when part of the governance budget is actually a customer who doesn't have a financial education, has a background in plumbing or, or something that's quite real in terms of uh, uh, workflow. You have to make some space for their decision-making considerations and you know, and the fact that they do respond to something like the media and what the media focuses on. That's an interesting uh, piece to discuss in terms of the challenge of building portfolios for the average mum and dad really is what we what we hear. And, and you mentioned a, a tradesperson as well, people that probably don't have the understanding of 
really how markets work and how portfolios move around. How much do you feel that then your portfolio has to really almost capture those thematics of what people will be looking for almost in terms of what they can resonate with when they look at their portfolio or their financial advisor tells them about their portfolio? We definitely stay engaged with those and uh, you have to keep an open conversation with financial advisors to understand and make sure you're hearing the same ones that are coming through and perhaps don't just jump to conclusions about what you see in the media. But definitely we engage with and and quite open to those conversations and have to uh, work with or take the input from financial advisors on how they actually navigate and uh, you know, uh, the behavioral biases of, of customers to, you know, what they're looking for is something that makes it easy for the customer to be comfortable with, but at the same time also delivers some or all of the, you know, the financial, I don't want to use the term engineering, but those benefits that come from good, well-structured investment products. So, so you know, we do have to engage with uh, some of those issues and talk to people about things like why there's no Bitcoin in their balance fund. It's an interesting one because there are so many different groups of members out there that you need to be able to create almost product for. Uh, And in this current polarized society that we live in, everyone's got some very different ways of looking at their portfolio and what themes actually resonate with them most. So, you know, how do you then go through the process and try and narrow down a series of potential products that actually make sense for the end user? Um, And I ask that question also because there's this constant threat that, there will be new players that will move into the wealth space. It's this feeling that it was, it's an Apple or a Google that will then start to create portfolios. How much do you feel under pressure to, to think about products that line up with your end clients and at the same time be proactive as an industry to, to these potential competition that might come in? To answer perhaps two questions in there in the order they were asked, definitely you're right that there is many, many iterations and uh, very particular desires, Uh, particularly if you were to talk about something like ethical investing, there are some people that have very particular issues that they want reflected in portfolios that others wouldn't and may come at a cost to performance, some very particular ones that that is. So we really have clarity on who our customers are in terms of our larger organization, its value proposition, uh, and we really use that as our, uh, our anchor and our guide. It certainly means that we have to engage with the customers, engage with advisors, but we're not going to introduce quite niche things into our core product offering because it's sort of the needs of the few, if I can put it that way. However, really to your point, definitely there is you know risk of disruption in, uh, I think, for all the financial services, but certainly within the wealth space uh, and, and within retirement savings. I, I don't I don't know of any work that's going on at one of the um, you know Silicon Valley type large tech organisations, but. It does make sense that there will be people to uh, to get involved somewhere, uh, and I think that um, technology it sort of makes a lot of sense that technology is part of that solution. Like if you have very well developed machine learning, presumably that should be able to introduce any kind of uh, particular flavoring or value pro- values type uh, filtering into uh, investment management, so that it can be. You know, so you can almost have individually tailored portfolios that use, you know, more traditional drivers at the core of how they're buying exposure, but play with the edges, I guess, a personal personalized way. Well, it's, it's interesting then because, you know, if you think about where 
it it feels the superannuation space is going and and really with this whole introdu- introduction of the your future your super and the benchmarking that that's come in there's this whole feeling that now people will be indexing more and more more passive and then people just doing a little bit of active on the side to try and outperform their competitors really where's the edge you know if you think about the whole industry and the potential threats that come down the you know the the chain you know, do you need to see more active portfolios that that uh, will have to try and really sell their wares as being a good active manager? So I'm a believer personally that um, more diversity in the way people invest money should actually lead to better outcomes for the whole industry. And you don't have to be a believer of that. Like it, it may not be correct, but certainly your future, your super legislation is going to push people exactly the opposite direction. And you've sort of called it out. We've thought about implementation of our my super and frankly you have to move back to as as an institutional investor thinking a bit like some of your tracking your constrained managers that's exactly how you're going to have to invest now i know that we and others actually have have had an even better performance and so you start with quite a good sort of uh, buffer if I can put it that way, an outperformance type buffer. But practically, if you're taking active risk, eventually that's going to hurt. And so over a long period of time, I think that we will see more indexing in the industry and and I guess a bit more homogeneousness about uh, default money. And again, I believe that that probably leads to lower overall returns over very long timeframes, you know, and, and obviously saving for retirement for most people are 30 to 70-year timeframe kind of investment. And so over those kinds of timeframes, I, I think that diversity is really a, a positive thing. And, and if you look at the history of institutional investment, there's been some wonderful ideas and innovations that have occurred and really transformed the way many invest. And uh, if there's a tight risk budget that we're all working toward, doesn't make a lot of space for approaching and, and trying on some different things, which, uh, yeah, I sort of... Uh, I don't think it's a positive for, you know, again, for innovation leading to better risk return outcomes long, long term. Do you feel there's any disadvantage then for the retail funds, given that they historically haven't been able to take the amount of illiquidity that the super funds have, have had the flexibility to do? Does, is there some disadvantage that comes from that? I don't actually think so. Like I think that in our program, we, we like that. We, we, have a, a, we use a small amount of illiquidity compared to uh, the average uh, profit for member fund. and um, But I think that, you know, the process that the large profit for member funds that do invest in a lot of direct illiquid assets, that they've got huge process changes that they're going to be undertaking right now because they have to be thinking in all of those investments about, uh, you know, a benchmark relative performance. There are benchmarks for these assets. And so the opportunity by opportunity uh, process will will have to morph because they're not going to be able to potentially buy assets or, or they're going to use up a lot of their risk budget to buy assets that look very different to the guts of the um, the benchmark. Uh, so I don't think there's a big difference in that regard. It certainly has had an impact on performance historically, but uh, my understanding of where your future, your super lands, you know, presented with the same kinds of challenges and will have to embrace the same kind of language I've been using on this conversation, which is a risk budget. You're obviously a big proponent of active managers. Uh, it, it's got a, a key place in, in people's portfolios. I'm just curious around what have you seen over the, you know, the last years around what actually makes a successful active manager? I'm a, I'm a believer that a lot of managers 
struggle and probably go out of business. People that have very strong conviction and have very good processes sometimes don't succeed simply because the return cycle can be long if they haven't really thought that through. So what's made successful managers over perhaps the last decade is people that are willing to adapt, people that think with, have, have, I guess, a a flexible mindset, not not people that flip-flop on a strategy. They have to have a clear plan and a clear way to extract value. But I think people that are more able to acknowledge the times and sources of return are not static, they change. Those are the people that have had more success over the last decade. And, and probably just to add to that, I think that's a big part in the last decade because you know the role of central banks and their influence on asset prices has uh, increased dramatically. And so that has changed the, the way excess returns or where excess returns are and where some historical excess returns were at. The, the, the time frame to get those returns is elongated or, or the returns have disappeared while, while the central banks are, are in force. So uh, that, that's certainly what has been really critical for, I think, for investing. And I, I just like the, that kind of thinking, even in sort of a, a role like mine, I think you've got to be open to the world changing, but you've got to understand and have good, strong foundations and process around core returns and how you're going to generate those returns. So uh, flexibility with some conviction mixed in. I'm curious then around how do you approach being almost non-consensus in some places because the ability to make returns is being non-consensus and being contrarian. How do you then think about that? And then how do you build a team around that with the right sort of people that can filter those ideas in? Yeah, so uh, look, I'm a big believer in that. And it's actually, it it sort of motivates me perhaps if I can put it that way. I I do like to talk to managers and and hear from people that are non-consensus. But at the same time, occasionally you do talk to people who that is their entire reason for being. And that is always where they stand. They're always in a, a out of consensus position. And and frankly, those people don't do well when, when there's some long trends. That's why I say flexibility is pretty important. In terms of how you build a team, you definitely need uh, diversity in your team, diversity of, of thought. You need people that focus on different types of issues and, and market drivers. I think you also need some, or sorry, we have a culture of devil's advocating. We're always very critical of, of any uh, active asset allocation positions that we we have on. We always want to understand how can this go wrong? What would happen if this goes wrong? Uh, I think those kinds of things are pretty critical because you get more comfort if you've tested your idea, if it's out of consensus. You get a lot more comfort if you've got a sense of how much pain you can take or you will take. All right, Thad, that's been a fantastic conversation. Thank you very much for your time today. Thank you, Alex. It's been great. Thank you for joining us. All views expressed on this podcast are subject to change and do not necessarily reflect the views of Connexus Financial. This podcast is for educational purposes only and should not be relied upon as investment advice.